All right, well, good afternoon. It's good to be with you. I'll give you a head start. We're going to be in Zechariah, so you may want to start turning there now in case it takes a minute to find Zechariah, second to last book in the Old Testament. Thankful to be with you, and we're going to be doing a short series on the book of Zechariah, beginning this afternoon with an introduction to the book, so I'm looking forward to it. It's probably one of my top five favorite books of the Old Testament. It's one that, as was mentioned previously, Uh, is often overlooked, but has a repository, I would say, of profound prophetic truth for us about the coming Messiah, about Jesus, and about his future kingdom. So I'm looking forward to studying it together. Uh, My wife, Judy, is with me uh, this afternoon, so uh, glad that she was able to accompany me. And uh, we've enjoyed fellowshipping with you already, so thank you for your warm welcome. We appreciate it. What I'd like to do is just begin uh, reading the first few verses. This is going to be kind of an introduction to the book, so I'll be looking at a lot of things that relate to how Israel got to the point they're at at the start of the book of Zechariah, and we'll look at some of the history and then uh, derive a message, some application from these opening six verses. The title of the message this afternoon is Turn Back to God, Turn Back to God. It's a message both of exhortation and and warning in a sense, but also a message of encouragement, a message that uh, we need to fine-tune our ears and hearts to hear what God has to say. And if there's one thing to take away from the message this morning, my main point will be this, that getting right with God is the most important thing you can do. Getting right with God is the most important thing you can do. So let me uh, read the passage, lead us in prayer, and then we'll, we'll look at it together. Zechariah 1, beginning in verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented or literally returned, turned back and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll look at this together. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for uh, this important message and this important book, which gives us comfort in a world which is often hostile to the truth of the gospel. We thank you for this message that was given to the prophet Zechariah, this uh, helpful exhortation to remember that our spiritual state is the most important thing we can think about. I pray that you would impress these words on our hearts this afternoon. I pray that through your spirit, you would both encourage us, strengthen us, comfort us, and also challenge us that we would be 
faithful followers of Jesus Christ. If there are some this morning, Lord, who don't yet know you personally, don't yet have uh, a relationship with you, I pray that these words uh, today would, would help them to see the importance of placing their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, and I pray that that would be clear through this text and the others we, we talk about this afternoon. We ask for your blessing now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been in a situation in your life where maybe something's happened that's kind of gotten your attention? Maybe an early signal that something might be going wrong. Maybe your car's making a funny noise. Maybe the check engine light has come on. Maybe you walk into a situation in public where things just don't feel right. Or maybe there's some kind of conflict or uh, a disease with somebody that you're close friends with and you wonder, is, is something more going on? We had recently, just this week, sort of a vibrant illustration of this. Uh, we had some new flooring put in our house in the kitchen area uh, about a month ago. And as a result of that, we had some things that were happening that just seemed weird to us. Like there was a wet spot that appeared on the trim and they came back out and looked at it and they thought, well, maybe just when we were hooking up the line to the fridge, it got wet. You know, I don't think it's a big deal. I think everything looks good. We're like, okay, fine. Sounds good. But then other things were happening. There was like a squishing noise when you walked there. Uh, and we were just like, okay, we'll keep an eye on this, not sure if anything's wrong, but maybe, it just doesn't quite seem right. Uh, and then Friday, things kind of came to a head, so the, it looked like the, there was beginning a bulge forming by the fridge, and at first I thought, that must be an optical illusion, but no, it, it really was, and then as the course of the week went on, finally Friday, it sort of, the planks just kind of split apart, and then we were stepping near the fridge by the pantry and you could see water starting to come up and I thought, boy, something just doesn't seem right. So I called them, they're like, well, we'll come and take a look at it. And I'm like, okay, well, we can wait, I guess, till Monday. So then I, Friday night, I thought I should just go check the basement, you know, because our fridge is right above the basement area that one more time, I go down there and sure enough, there's water just pouring down onto the carpet. That's the last thing you want to see at 11.30 on a Friday night, as you can imagine. Well, come to find out, uh, when they had installed it, I think what happened is they nicked the supply line of water to the fridge, and there was just a slow drip, 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 drip. And that went on for a couple weeks. And as it accumulated and built up, it began to have more serious issues until finally it just poured out into the basement. And maybe you've had a situation in your life where something similar has happened where maybe there are early warning signs that you can either choose to ignore, which I have to admit sometimes I do. I'm good in a crisis, but sometimes I don't always see those early warning signs. Or maybe uh, you've made the, the wise decision to figure out what's, what's wrong, maybe correct that. Maybe something's going on at work, maybe family conflicts a scary diagnosis you need to get checked out, uh, whatever it may be, maybe the Lord is trying to get your attention in some way. And you begin to think, is, is the Lord trying to teach me something here? What am I supposed to do with this? Is, is the Lord bringing this to mind because I need to get something taken care of? And when we open the book of Zechariah, this is kind of the situation that confronts us with regard to Israel and where they are in their history. 
Now, I often joke that the minor prophets, these last books of the Old Testament, are where the pages in our Bible are usually still crisp and clean, right? Because we don't often go here. But I would argue that we have some profound truth in these books that are, that's very important for us to understand. So what we're going to do this morning, Lord willing, is just sort of a, a deep dive on what's going on in Israel's history that brought them to this point and why the prophet Zechariah starts with this message. If you noticed, he, he didn't really begin with uh, a message that says God loves you and has a plan for your life, although that is true that God loves us. The message he starts with is repent, turn back, turn back from your sins, make sure that you're right with the Lord. But if you recall in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus comes on the scene, the first words he says in public, the first message he says is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So I would argue that Zechariah similarly is coming with probably the most important message we need to hear at the beginning, and that is, getting right with God is the most important thing you can do. Getting right with God is the most important thing you can do. All right, so where are we in the book? Let me just sort of establish uh, the background, and I'm going to try to get this to work. Oh, that's not where I am. That is true, but that's not the next slide. I'll let them get that. All right, as they're working on that, so where are we as the book of Zechariah unfolds? Uh, yes, that's good. Thank you. All right, hopefully the, the font there is legible. I'll work on getting better as I go along. Sometimes it's hard to know how big to make it. So, All right, so as we come to the book of Zechariah, there are certain things that we need to kind of understand to situate ourselves and to know what's going on. There are three books that form the end of the Old Testament. They are the books of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And in a sense, those three books really should be read together. There are a lot of connections between these books. And especially that's the case for Haggai and Zechariah. In fact, the, the dating formula of Zechariah 1 tells us that Zechariah starts his ministry smack dab in the middle of Haggai's ministry. In fact, to get a sense for that, let's go back to Haggai chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1, and if you notice in verse 1, it says, in the second year of Darius the king. That's the same year that Zechariah starts. And it says, in the sixth month on the first day of the month. So Haggai starts his ministry in what we, we would equate to August of 520 B.C. Zechariah's ministry is going to begin in late October, early November. So they overlap Haggai and Zechariah. They're contemporaries. They both are essentially preaching to the same audience Although they're focusing on slightly different things, Haggai is an important introduction to what Zechariah has to say. Well, if I had to do a pop quiz this morning on what is the book of Haggai about, I don't know how we would fare. Maybe you've read it recently, maybe not. Maybe you recall something about it. If you have read it recently or recall something about it, you may remember that Haggai seems to really focus on building the temple. He wants the people to get wood 
get what they need, get together and build the temple. And part of the reason Haggai says that is, if God's going to bless the nations, and that's his plan, his plan is to bless the nations by bringing salvation to them, you first have to have a proper worship in place for that to happen. And so Haggai is saying, go out to the hills, get wood, build the temple. But there's also another really important thing that Haggai says that's a an an important introduction to Zechariah, and that is Haggai says, do you notice there are things happening that should be seen as early warning signs? In other words, do you notice that there are things happening that maybe should get your attention? Notice what he says in uh, verse 5 in this opening chapter. He says, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And then note verse 6, you have sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does, not, does so to put them into a bag with holes. What is Haggai saying here? He's saying, basically, do you realize that you're beginning to experience the Lord's judgment? It's beginning to happen, and you're probably not even aware What Haggai is doing here is he's tapping into Old Testament passages, especially Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. In those chapters, God said, if you obey the law, if you obey my covenant with Moses, I will bless you abundantly. You'll have crops, you'll have large families, you'll have herds and flocks. I will bless you because I've chosen you as my people and I intend to bless you, but... The opposite is also true if you fail to obey. If you fail to follow my commands, you will experience not blessing, but curse. You won't have flocks and herds. You will experience adversity. And if you've read those chapters, you know there are many, many verses that go over all the bad things that will happen to Israel if they fail to obey the covenant. And so what Haggai is saying is, spiritually, you need to recalibrate yourself so that when you build this temple, you'll be in the right place. Now, if we fast forward again to Zechariah 1, Zechariah comes on the scene just a few months after this has happened. And he begins to address the same things. But here, he's addressing the fact that Getting right with God, that is, repenting and turning back to God, are the most important things they can do. C.S. Lewis once said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And often when things aren't quite going the way we would like them to, that's a way that God uses to get our attention that we need to turn back to him. And so Zechariah begins with this message, and I'll get to the history in just a minute, but what I want to establish first is in these first opening verses, Zechariah wants to do a couple things. He wants to get their attention. He's focusing on the fact that, remember, our forefathers were punished for their sins. Don't get complacent. Don't think everything's okay. We can just kind of roll along because sin has real consequences. If there's sin in our lives, we need to deal with that. Secondly, he wants to remind them that God is sovereign even when we're in situations of adversity. 
You may have noticed as I read these verses that he likes to refer to God here as the Lord of hosts. And we'll talk about that in a little bit as well. But his emphasis with this point is there may be a foreign king, a Persian king on the throne right now, but our God is sovereign. Our God is the Lord Almighty. He has at his disposal vast armies. He has angelic hosts worshiping him. He can accomplish anything. He can do anything consistent with his character. And so he wants to get their attention. He also wants to emphasize that God is sovereign. He's going to accomplish what he intends to do. And then thirdly, he wants to tell them, turn back to God. Getting right with God is the most important thing you can do. Don't neglect your spiritual life. All right, so let's look in detail at the text beginning in verse 1. Notice how Zechariah begins. He begins with a date formula. It's the eighth month in the second year. Now, we have to understand that because uh, their calendars were a little bit different from ours, we might think of the eighth month as the month of August, when in reality they started their year in the spring. And so this equates to October or early November 520 B.C. As I said before, Haggai began in late August, and now uh, Zechariah comes on the scene. Well, what do we need to know or understand in terms of the background of what's gone on? One of the big things is the people have just recently returned from captivity. If you remember the history of Israel, while they lived in the land... They were called again and again by prophets to follow the Lord, to be faithful to the Lord. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Their sin accumulated over the years and got worse and worse. And we read in First and Second Kings about some pretty terrible kings who sacrificed their own children, who allowed all kinds of evil and iniquity to uh, abound in the land. And finally, God called them to judgment. And Jeremiah the prophet specifically said this. He prophesied that Babylon would come and take them for 70 years into captivity. Now, if you remember Habakkuk, another minor prophet, Habakkuk uh, was wondering what the Lord was doing because evil was so rampant in his society. And God said, I'm going to do something that will kind of just blow your mind. I'm going to use Babylon to judge my people. And Habakkuk's response is, but Babylon's just as bad. How can you use Babylon to punish Israel? And God says, well, I have plans for Babylon too. I will eventually deal with their sin, but I'm using them to deal with Israel's sin. And so Jeremiah prophesied this in Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12. He said this, the whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these mountains shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And so that's exactly what happened. And if you know some of the history, Babylon eventually came. One of the the worst things that happened toward the end of Israel's history was King Josiah was killed in battle. He was the last faithful good king. He was killed in battle against the Egyptians who were going out to meet the Babylonians. As a result of that battle, the Babylonians became the superpower of the day. 
and they eventually made their way down to Jerusalem, and they attacked Jerusalem three separate times. One of the times was when Daniel and his friends got taken to Babylon, but they came back two more times, and then finally, in 586 B.C., they destroyed the city, they burnt the temple, they took the remaining elites of society, and they took them to Babylon, and the captivity began. And so, 70 years Israel spent in what we could almost call a national timeout in a way where they're taken from their land, many are killed, they're forced to live in a new area, and the Lord is reminding them of the consequences of sin. You remember in the book of Daniel, Daniel in chapter 9 says he's reading Jeremiah and he comes across this verse about the 70 years and he realizes the time is almost up. And that's in fact what happened. So if we fast forward about 70 years later, something happens in Babylon. There's a new leader that conquers the city and takes over. His name is Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great. He's the leader of the Medes and the Persians. He comes to Babylon, he attacks the city, and Babylon by that time had become so corrupt, so decadent, so dysfunctional that historians of the day say that the crowds actually cheered Cyrus as he came into the city because they were looking for a new leader who would restore some order to their city. If you could go to the next slide, uh, I'm going to continue with that. All right, so Nebuchadnezzar defeats Israel, and then he himself is defeated by Cyrus. And Cyrus is a different kind of leader. He says, rather than deporting people and taking them to a new country, what I think is a better policy is to let them go home. Let them go back to their native country. Let them build their temples to their gods and worship their gods. And if they do that, then they'll serve me more faithfully than if I force them to leave and move somewhere else. And that seemed to be a good policy. So he made a decree and the Israelites were able to come back. And so they do that in 539 BC. Uh, they're led by Zerubbabel. He's an important character we'll see here in Zechariah, as well as Joshua. Zerubbabel is the political leader. Joshua is the spiritual leader. Zerubbabel is the grandson of the last king of Judah. Jo Joshua is the grandson of the last high priest of Judah. And so these are important men who are leaders in their community. They lead about 50,000 people to return back. Now, if you can imagine this, imagine you've grown up for 70 years. You've been in a foreign country and now you're coming back. And on the one hand, it's exciting because now you're coming into the land. It gives you a sense of purpose. But on the other hand, there's a lot of work to do, and it's easy, easy to get discouraged. You're thinking, how are we going to do this? How are we going to rebuild the temple? How are we going to rebuild the walls? They were destroyed by the Babylonians. How are we going to raise our family in the rubble of a destroyed city? And so as they come, they begin to get things going. They uh, establish an altar, they begin to build, they lay the foundation of the temple, but discouragement sets in. And for about 16 years, they're just spiritually paralyzed. The uh, Samaritans and different people that are in the area, they're constantly giving them trouble, they're 
reporting back to Darius that there's all kinds of uh, insurrection talk happening and you can't trust the Jewish people. They're going to rebel against you. And so the work halts. The people get discouraged and they wonder, is this ever really going to happen? And this is precisely when God sends the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to the people in order to encourage them. And so, with this leader, if we could go to the next slide, with this leader, Darius, he's the new Persian king. He's a very effective leader. Uh, He established a postal system. He built roads. He established boundaries. He did all kinds of things that were very effective, but yet relations with him were a little bit sticky at times because the people of Israel were constantly facing threats from the surrounding people. And so Darius is the king, and the people here uh, are now ready to hear God's message and to finally conclude uh, finishing the temple and doing what the Lord commands. So this is where we find ourselves at the opening of the book. This is the historical background to the book of Zechariah. So if you can imagine, you're back in the land, you've begun to build the temple, Haggai has been prophesying, and now a new prophet steps up to the mic, as it were, and he begins with a message for the people. Now, what do we know about Zechariah? Notice here how he's described. He gives us two generations. He says he's the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. Now, that doesn't mean that he's got two different people that he calls dad. What essentially that means is he's the grandson of Iddo and the son of Berechiah. Often in in biblical texts, Uh, Son of could mean you're the descendant of. It could mean you're a a much later generation. So what this seems to mean is that Zechariah is Iddo's grandson. Now, what do we know about Iddo? Iddo is mentioned in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. He seems to have been an important person. And so what I think Zechariah is saying is, Iddo, my grandfather, was an important spiritual leader. He was a Levite. He was a priest. He was the one that came back with Joshua and Zerubbabel. And so I I descend from a very important lineage. But what this also might suggest is that Zechariah is relatively young at the time of the prophecy. If Iddo is his grandfather, and if Iddo was one of the leading men that returned, then Zechariah himself may have been just a small child when they first came back to the land. He may be in his early 20s or early 30s. We don't exactly know his age. One of the visions that we'll see in the coming weeks, Lord willing, uh, refers to him as a young man. And so Zechariah the prophet seems to be a young prophet in connection with Haggai, and he comes on the scene and he begins to exhort the people. Now, Zechariah's name is important. Names in the Bible are important. His name means He whom the Lord remembers, or the one whom the Lord remembers. Why is that important? Because the people needed the encouragement to remember that God hadn't forgotten and forsaken them. I don't know if you're ever in a situation in your life where you wonder, is God really here? Is he seeing what is going on? Is he understanding the struggle I'm having, the adversity I'm facing, and A name like Zechariah helps us to remember that God does, in fact, remember us. And when the Bible says remember, it doesn't mean just calls it to mind. It means 
He pays attention to us. He meets us in our need. He helps us. And so the Lord was using Zechariah to encourage the people. Remember, he said even to us in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord remembers. Zechariah comes on the scene. And and Zechariah, I think, in many ways is is one of the the chief leading prophets of the Old Testament, probably uh, the greatest of these post-exilic prophets. When I use the word post-exilic, what I mean is this is after the exile. They've returned home. And what Zechariah does that is unique is he focuses the most of any of the prophets on the person of the coming Messiah. If you want to see Jesus in the Old Testament, Zechariah is one of the clearest books to show us what Jesus will be. And I'll argue as we get to the night visions in the coming weeks that Jesus is there in the visions. He's a character significantly in most of the visions, and we'll see how how that plays out. What, Josh, what Zechariah also does is he tells the people not only is the Messiah coming, but when he comes, he's going to set up a kingdom. His kingdom won't be like the kingdoms of the earth that are uh, characterized by corruption and, and bad leadership. His kingdom will be perfect. His kingdom will cause the nations to gather and receive a blessing. There will be peace. There will be prosperity. There will be good things that come when King Jesus, the Messiah, is on his throne. And so Zechariah comes and he prophesies during a time where there's a lot of turmoil, a lot of questions, and he comes with an important message. We could go to the next slide. We'll look now at the message that he brings. All right, look at verse 2. He begins, as I said, by saying, The Lord was angry. The Lord was angry very angry with your fathers. He begins by emphasizing wrath. Literally, this means the Lord was furious with your ancestors. Now, that doesn't seem like a very loving way to begin, in a way, right? Why does Zechariah come on the scene saying not... You know, I I know you're discouraged, but you need to know that God loves you and cares for you. He's going to get to that eventually, but he begins first by saying, God was angry with your forefathers. What is he doing here? What's the point of this message? I think what Zechariah is saying is, in a time when we are tempted to grow complacent or discouraged, the first thing we need to know and remember is who God is. And God is a God who's holy. God is a God who's sovereign and powerful. God is a God of justice. Now, it's important, of course, to emphasize God's love. And many today do emphasize that. But often in our rush to emphasize what we would see as as the uh, compassionate side of God, sometimes we skip right over the part where God is also a holy, righteous, and just God. God is a God who cannot tolerate sin. God is a God who wants his people to reflect his character. God is a God that we don't just willy-nilly choose how to worship. We must come to him in the way he prescribes. In the New Testament, this means coming through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. As he himself said in John 14, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. So it's a message that's both uh, inviting and encouraging, but also exclusive. God is a God who's holy. God is a God who's just. And a passage that I think is probably one of the most important texts of the Old Testament, and sometimes I even call it the gospel of the Old Testament, is a passage where God reveals his character to Moses and by extension to Israel. He passes by Moses and he describes his character in a classic text. It's found in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And what God does there is say, I'm a God who has mercy and love and compassion, but I'm also a God who deals with sin. Don't forget one to the neglect of the other and vice versa. He says this, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. In other words, what the message that Zechariah brings that the people need to hear at this moment is, yes, God has made a covenant with you. He will be your God. He has love for you. He's chosen you out of all the nations of the, of the world. But don't take that for granted. Never take for granted that the, Lord, that the Lord doesn't deal with sin as a serious issue. And often when we, when we approach God, we sort of want the benefits we want the good things, but sometimes we're unwilling to hear the hard truth about our sin. And Zechariah comes up to this point several times. Uh, he mentions in other places the, the idea that uh, people, when they hear the message, can be hardened in their heart. They can be hardened in their heart. He'll talk about this in chapter 7 and verse 12. Let me just read that text where he describes the people and he says, uh, they made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Talking again about their ancestors. This is a common theme in scripture. When we hear the truth of God's message, there's a temptation to steal up against it, to harden our hearts, to sort of get angry that God is a God who deals with sin. We see this in other texts. Romans 2.5 says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Proverbs 28.14, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So Zechariah begins by saying, Don't forget the Lord was angry with your forefathers because of their sin. But notice what he says in verse 3. Therefore say to them, this is what the Lord says, turn back or return to me. Notice over the next two verses how this word appears several times. He says, return to me and I will return to you. And then in verse 4, return from your evil ways. This is the same word that's used in each time. It's a word that means literally to turn back. To return or to turn back. Another way to translate this would be repent. Repent of your sin. Turn back from your ways. Turn back to the Lord. And our message this morning, if I could just uh, 
build upon Zechariah's is the most important thing we can gather as we're hearing God's word is to remember, is there an area where I need to turn from my sin and turn back to God? Is there an area where I've been resisting the Lord, pushing back against him? Because if that's the case, I need to turn back to the Lord. Because the Lord deals with sin. We know that. We've heard that. Second Kings tells us in chapter 17 that the reason the Babylonians came was because Israel had refused to repent. 2 Kings 17, 7 says this disaster happened because the people of Israel had sinned against their Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so Zechariah says, turn back. His message is, turn back to God. But one other thing that he emphasizes is, as I said before, that the Lord is the Lord of hosts. The Lord is the Lord of hosts. What Zechariah is focusing here is on two truths that I think converge together. One is the Lord deals with sin, and the other is that the Lord, because he's sovereign, has the power to deal with sin. In other words, what Zechariah is saying is, don't think you can outrun God. Don't think that if I just hold on long enough, eventually God will forget about this. If I just ignore the problem, eventually it will go away. Zechariah is saying that's not the case because the Lord is not a God who just sort of turns away or forgets. The Lord is the sovereign God. Zechariah likes to use this title, and Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi cumulatively used that title, the Lord of hosts, one-third of all its occurrences in the Old Testament. It's a favorite of theirs. And they do it to emphasize that even though a foreign power may be on the throne, God is still sovereign. God is still sovereign. And so Zechariah warns them. He says, God gave a message to your ancestors, and yet they refused to believe. Notice verses 5 and 6. He says, your fathers, where are they? The prophets, do they live forever? My words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? His point here is God's word will win out. Don't think you can outlast God. Don't think you can ignore his words or turn away from them because eventually they will overtake you. The word of the Lord is powerful. We see this all through scripture. Uh, Psalm 119, for instance, says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Verse 160, Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We can think of it this way. We hear a lot of talk these days about being on what some people call the right side of history. And often they use this phrase to sort of suggest if you, if you refuse to go along with what we're proposing, you're going to be on the wrong side of history and time will show that you were really wrong and all these sorts of things. And often it doesn't really matter what the, the issue is so much as it's sort of used to kind of uh, force people to go along with certain kinds of thinking. Well, if we can extrapolate that to Zechariah, what Zechariah is essentially saying is God is always on the right side of history. His word never fails. His word is always supreme. We all will be long in the grave and his word will still be supreme. So don't think that you can outrun God. Don't think that you can ignore God. Don't think that if I just don't deal with this, 
I won't have to. It'll eventually go away. Zechariah says, that's not the case. God's word will overtake you, and eventually uh, you will uh, have to face the reality of that. And so, he says at the end of verse 6, so they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us in our, deal, our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. What is this about? I think what he's saying here is the ancestors eventually did recognize they were wrong. Eventually they repented, but it was too late. They were already in Babylon. They were already in exile. And in exile, they said, you know what? God was right. And they turned back to God. But at that point, they had already received the punishment for their sins. And so Zechariah is saying, you, his audience, you have an opportunity to respond in time. Don't delay. If there's something wrong in your life, deal with it. Don't ignore those check engine warning lights. If God is dealing in your heart with sin, you need to respond. You need to deal with it because eventually his word will overtake you as it did for the fathers. If we could go to the last slide, I want to just draw this to a close with a couple of applications and thoughts here. All right, the first is, don't be hard-hearted or apathetic when the Lord is dealing with you. Has God placed a check engine warning light in your life recently? Is there something where, uh, you know, you've been involved maybe in a, in a sin and you've had some conviction and you thought, you know, I should really deal with this, but just maybe not right now. I would encourage you this morning, don't let that go. You've been resisting God if you've been pushing back against that small voice of Scripture in your conscience or in your mind. I encourage you this morning to, to deal with it. Now that may be that you need to, for the first time, trust in Christ for salvation. That may mean that you've been hearing the gospel, hearing the word of God, and you've just never yourself placed your faith in Christ because, you know, this is your parents' religion or you're just not sure or uh, you kind of want to find out for yourself. And I would encourage you this morning that God is speaking through his word. And as you hear his word week after week, time after time, he's calling you to trust in Christ for salvation. And you ignore that message at your own peril. The gospel tells us, the, the scripture tells us, God created a, a good and perfect world. He put humanity in that world as the pinnacle of his creation, but we rebelled, we chose sin, we ignored the commands of God, and we said, my way, not God's way, and we fell into sin. We embraced sin and foolishness. This is spelled out for us in Genesis 3, and we know what happened next. Sin leads to death. It leads to judgment. But God didn't leave us there. The book of Genesis tells us that God took the first step. He provided a covering for Adam and Eve, and ever since, he's been taking that first step to provide an answer to the sin problem. And ultimately, this, this consummated in the person of Jesus Christ, his own son, he sent into the world. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience. He died a death of punishment in our place, taking our sin. And God raised him from the dead to show he was an acceptable sacrifice. 
And so I would encourage you this morning, if you've never trusted in Christ, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to place your faith in Christ for salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you've never trusted in Christ this morning, I encourage you to place your faith in Christ, and I would love to talk with you after the service if you have questions about that, uh, how you can be sure that you've trusted in Christ for salvation. If you're already a believer, though I would encourage you from this text, don't be apathetic if you're beginning that slide in toward, towards sin. Make sure that you're dealing with it, that you are turning back from your sin. Secondly, uh, make sure we examine our priorities. What do we place our priorities in? What are we prioritizing as believers? Zechariah's message here is that God's word overtook the fathers. Whatever they thought was important, ultimately what proved to be true and everlasting was not the things they put their trust in, but in the word of God. We live in a culture and day, and I myself face this, where I feel like I'm constantly distracted, constantly pulled away by the things of the world. And Zechariah, I think, is a clarion call to us to make sure we're putting our focus in God's values, what God says important, what God says is eternal and lasting and worthwhile. Make sure we prioritize that. And then finally, wait on the Lord. He will accomplish his good plans for us. It may seem that we're going through some challenges. It may seem like the Lord has put us in a place where we're spiritually struggling, where we're dealing with conflict, we're dealing with uncertainty and anxiety. Let me encourage you from the book of Zechariah this morning that God remembers. God is there. God is good and gracious, and he will intervene he will bring all things to a good and glorious end. And his message through the prophet Zechariah this morning is, trust him and make sure that you're right with God so that he can bless you. So I end with this uh, exhortation. Getting right with God is the most important thing you can do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this text this morning. We thank you for this time in your word. I pray that these words of scripture would encourage us, but also would uh, help us to see that if there are areas where we need to shake off apathy or shake off sin patterns and turn back to you, that we would do that. I pray that you would take this word, press it upon our hearts, encourage us as we seek to understand you better, to walk with you faithfully and fruitfully. I pray that you would bless us and strengthen us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.